serving here at Grace as one of the pastors, and we are so glad that you're here this morning to worship with us, to open the word with us as we study. We believe um, that we have the very words of God. Um, It's funny because uh, with the use of social media and things, um, we see a lot about different worldviews, different cultures, and, uh, and there are oftentimes that we're tempted in our own hearts to think, those people are crazy. Um, and then I'm reminded uh, that we as Christians believe we have the very written word of God in a book and that a Middle Eastern man died on a cross and now sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning over the universe. Um, and then I realize that our beliefs seem very crazy to an outside world. So if you're here this morning and you're unfamiliar with church and um, with the Bible, with Christianity, I'm going to tell you, It may sound crazy to you, but I hope that as we open the word of God this morning, you would be convinced in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and is, and that he rules and that he reigns over the earth. Um, And so this morning, we're going to continue in a series that we began last week called The Stories We Tell. If you would, open your Bible to Genesis 1. We're going to kind of start there um, as, a, as a launching point into Genesis 6. Um, if you look at our graphic up here, actually we're going to be studying the story that this kind of points to, which is the story of Noah's ark and Noah's flood. Um, as a young kid growing up in church, I um, often looked at the Bible as a book about heroes that I was supposed to emulate. Um, I heard all of these stories as a kid growing up. I heard about David and Goliath. I heard about Noah's flood. I heard about Cain and Abel. And and I heard all all these different stories throughout the Bible. David and what he did with Bathsheba. David becoming king over Israel. All these different stories. And I thought, these are heroes that I'm supposed to emulate. These are examples for me. Well, that was a daunting task, and one that I would soon learn was impossible to achieve. I couldn't possibly emulate the faith of people like Abraham, who would lay his own son on the altar. I'm sure many of you felt the same. You heard these stories about men and women throughout the scriptures, and and you thought, I want to be like them. And, And maybe to you, the Bible was just that, a book of stories about people that we're supposed to emulate. But that wasn't all. I also saw the Bible as a book of rules to obey. And maybe you grew up in the type of church or the type of home where that's all the Bible was, was a rule book. And scripture was quoted at you um, and you were expected to obey from the Ten Commandments all the way to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. I thought these actions or these deeds that, that I could muster up on my own, yet another impossible and daunting task. Then as I I grew in my faith, I saw the Bible like many other self-help books. Um, It's it's a way for me to be a better person, a way to be a better believer even in Jesus, that it's meant to help me follow Jesus. There are practical steps and guidance that I could live for him. While all of these things are true, the Bible is full of heroes There are commandments that we should obey, and it does help us know how to live a life committed to Jesus. The problem was, in all of those things, I saw the Bible as a book about me. I saw the Bible 
was a book for me, about me. Heroes that I was supposed to emulate, rules that I was supposed to follow, practical guidance for me. But the reality is the Bible, while it is all of those things, it's not about me. The Bible is a story and a story about God. And really it's the story of God and what he has done and what he will do. Look at Genesis 1 with me. Um, Right there at the beginning. If you read Genesis 1, you'll understand quickly that this book is not about you. From the very beginning in verse 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jump verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, and God separated, God saw, God called. Verse 6, God said, Verse 7, God made. Verse 8, God called. Verse 9, God said. Verse 10, God called the dry land, earth. God said that it was good. And God said over and over through chapter 1 of Genesis, the main focus of the story is God and his action in creating the world and in creating humanity. It is a story that he is writing, that he has written about what he has done and is going to do. Um, last week, if you were here with us, Josh preached a great sermon um, on the life of Joseph. and did a great job showing you that Joseph's story is pointing to a bigger story, the grand narrative of Scripture, and that is the story of God and what he is doing in Christ Jesus to call a people to himself. Um, I want to commend to you uh, a, a small resource. It's a small book called What is Biblical Theology? What is Biblical Theology? Um, it's maybe 120 pages. Like, this is not a big book. It's small. Um, by Jim Hamilton, or James Hamilton is actually on the cover. Um, so, What is Biblical Theology by James Hamilton? Some of what I'll say this morning, I'll be quoting from him later on. Um, that book has been instrumental and extremely helpful in me seeing the grand narrative of scripture and how all of the Bible points to one grand story that God is telling. And so today we're going to look at another one of those stories in the grand story, Noah and the flood. So flip with me over to Genesis 6 from Genesis 1. Now that I've made my point that this book is about God. We're going to begin in Genesis 6. Now, I want to, before we jump in, give you a little background of what's happened in these last um, five chapters. Uh, This is human history. This is where we started. Um, And so to get a sense of who Noah is, where he came from, we kind of want to understand his background, what line he came through. So throughout these first five chapters, we see two different genealogies traced. Um, through two different sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Seth. As many as you, of you know the story maybe of Cain and Abel. Um, Cain killed Abel because he was jealous of him. And so Adam and Eve had another son 
named Seth. And we see these two genealogies traced, and really they flow throughout the book of Genesis, and they're very different. The seventh generation from Adam through Seth is named in chapter 5, verse 24. His name was Enoch, and all that we know about him is this. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. That's all we know about him. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. So, so we believe that Enoch didn't really die, that, that God actually took him up into heaven. He walked with God. That's, that's the line, the seventh generation through Seth. The seventh generation from Adam through Cain was Lamech. And he was the first polygamist, and he was a murderer. We see that in, in chapter 4, verse 19. He took two wives for himself. Just so that you know, um, polygamy is not okay with God, even though we see it all throughout the Old Testament. It is a sin. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, when we see man and woman come together, God institutes a marriage that is one man, one woman for a lifetime. And Lamech here is seen as being evil in that he took two wives for himself. The Bible doesn't speak um, approvingly of that. Uh, and he was a killer, verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4. He, he kills a man. So we have this, this generation, or this genealogy going through Cain that seems to be evil, and represent evil, and this line through Seth that is godliness, and people who walk by faith with God. We only have two um, recordings of Words that men spoke in these first five chapters of Genesis. Only two men, their words are recorded in these chapters. And both of them, interestingly enough, are named Lamech. So, so we have two men whose words are actually recorded, and they're both named Lamech. One is from the line of Cain, the evil man. Um, and then one is from the line of Seth. And this is a man who trusted God. Lamech trusted God in what he would do as he promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And we know this because in chapter 5, verse 28, it says, When Lamech, the one from Seth, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, which actually means comforter or relief saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That harkens back to the curse in Genesis 3 that God has given man, that he would curse the ground that he works, that work would be painful and bring toil. And now Lamech is having a son. He names him Noah, God's relief. See, see in these first five chapters... These people are still looking for the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent. They think that their son, any one of them, could be the one that will crush the head of the serpent. So Lamech here is, is expressing that. Noah, I'm going to name him that because he's going to be the one who will relieve us of the curse that God has put on the earth. Eve, by the way, thought the same thing about Seth. She thought it was going to be true of Abel, but then Cain killed him. And so when she had Seth, she said the same thing. She was praying that he would be the one that would come from her to crush the head of the serpent. 
We all know because we have the full record of scripture that it didn't come for many, many years and generations later. But, but this is kind of the, the line that Noah came from, this, this holy line, this faithful generation of people who followed God from the line of Seth. So let's pick up the story here in chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, a lot of people stumble over, over this. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took their, as, many, or as their wives any that they chose. What is the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? marrying with the daughters of man. And then later we see they, they create some kind of people called Nephilim. And, and a lot of people get tripped up on this. Well, there are a lot of different theories about it. Um, some believe that this is speaking to those two lines that we just talked about. The sons of God being Seth's line, intermarrying with Cain's line, these wicked people, and creating this violent and chaotic people who are evil. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense since we've seen these lines being traced uh, through the first five chapters. Some believe that sons of God refers to fallen angels who are demons now, who possessed men that intermarried with um, women of earth and they created some kind of superhuman, violent, wicked creature called the Nephilim. Um, we don't really know and God doesn't really explain it. So it, it seems to be that we don't need to know, right? Um, if we needed to know, he'd tell us. Um, but, but those are the theories, just so you know what they are. Um, and there are many other weird theories. If you saw the movie Noah recently, um, a couple of years ago, they're, they're like rock people. I, I can tell you that that's probably not what they are. So, um, so we can just discard that and uh, hear some probable theories. Um, all right, verse 3. The, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So many of you know, up until this point, like people have been living for a long time, 600, 700, 900 years, people are alive. And God says at this point, he, keeps, he looks at these people and sees the wickedness and he's like, they're not gonna live that long. I can't handle them living that long. It's too much time for them to become more and more evil. And so he says, I'm going to cut them off at 120 years. 120 years. Um, and so throughout the book of Genesis, we see that number falling as to how long people live because God's bringing them down. His spirit's not going to abide in them forever. Verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
At this point, this is how God views humanity. Every intention of even their thoughts was evil. Every intention of even their thoughts was evil. Continually. Like never had a good thought. So the world is jacked up. We're three chapters from the fall of man and the world is so messed up that God regrets his decision to even make man. It hasn't been that long. But look at verse eight. There's a but. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you were like me, you were taught, or you may have understood, that God found favor with Noah because of something Noah did. Maybe because he was from this line of Seth, and um, Noah was a righteous man, and he was blameless. We'll see that a couple of verses down, or verse down. But actually, this word favor here doesn't imply that the Lord looked at Noah, that he was impressed by his righteousness, and so that he chose to save Noah because of who Noah was. Actually, in the Hebrew, this word favor would mean more like God favored Noah or God graced Noah. God determined that he would pour out grace on this man. So notice what follows the Lord giving his grace to Noah. This is not something Noah has done and God's found favor with him. It's that God just chose him and said, I'm going to pour out grace on you. I'm going to grace you. And notice in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Notice the order of events. It's not Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with God, therefore God favored Noah. No, the order is the exact opposite. God favored Noah, therefore Noah was blameless and righteous and walked with God. It's the same for us today. Folks, there's no life that you can live that God would look on you and say, man, they're doing a great job. I'm going to bring them in. They're blameless and righteous and upright. I need them on my team. No. No, it's the exact opposite. God looks at you in your wretched, evil, wicked state, just like the rest of Noah's generation. And he says, I'm going to give my grace to that one. I'm going to pour out my grace on her. I'm going to pour out my grace on him. And then in light of that, they're going to walk blameless and upright and righteous before me. Not because of anything they've done, but because of all that I have done. Now notice, we're, this story is a picture of the grand story, the grand narrative. And Noah, in many ways, looks like Adam. Noah is a second Adam. And we're going we're gonna to see these parallels between Adam and Noah as we walk through this story. Noah walked with God just as Adam walked with God in the garden before the fall. Noah walked with God. Noah wasn't righteous. God first grants grace and then Noah's blameless. So Noah had three sons. Verse 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They are not the three stooges. So um, verse 11, 
Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then in verse 18, what's the first word? But. But. This is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. There's so many times throughout the scriptures, God says, I'm fed up. I'm going to pour out my wrath on these people. And then it says something like, but God. But Noah was favored by the Lord. But, and here we have it again. I'm gonna bring a flood of waters to destroy all flesh, which has been given the breath of life under heaven and everything will die. But I will establish my covenant with you. God makes a promise to Noah, just as he had with Adam. You're going to be my people. I'm going to make a covenant with you. As God is judging the world after Adam's fall, he promises a savior through the seed of the woman. He makes this covenant with Adam, essentially that you've messed up but I'm going to save you through the seed of the woman. He will crush the serpent's head. Here as God is judging the world, he promises a covenant to come with Noah. Moving on. Second half of verse 18. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And he goes on to give some specific instructions. Look with me, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Did Noah do this out of his own power? No. He did it because God graced him. He did it because God had given him favor. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Jump with me to verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. This was a violent storm. The fountains of the deep burst open. In other words, this is a decreation. Remember in, in Genesis 1, there was water covering the whole earth and God's spirit hovered over the water. And then he said, let the waters part and let dry land appear. And so the water begins to recede, dry land appears. Here, we have the exact opposite happening. The fountains of the deep burst forth and the oceans begin again to cover the entire earth. It looks as though God is just going to decreate everything he made. 
He's going to undo what he's done. He'll cover the earth in water again. I want to make note of the circular nature of Moses' writing. Now, we believe that Moses wrote Genesis and most of those first five books of uh, the Old Testament. Um, Moses wrote this. And so he writes in a circular nature. Um, You'll notice that in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, It's not a linear story. Um, but he'll, he'll say something and he'll kind of give you a flyover view and then he comes back to it and gives a more detailed description of the things that happened. Um, and, and so he's doing the same thing in chapter six. He'll say something and he'll go for a little bit and then he'll come back to that event and explain it with a little more detail. And so that's what he's gonna do. So we're gonna kind of skip through some of that um, because we don't need all of it to understand the full story here. Um, so verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, on the very same day, when, when all the rain is going to start, um, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock, according to their kinds, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind, and every bird, according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord sealed the door. Again, we see all through this, it's the Lord that's acting. It's God who is acting in saving Noah. Noah is not saving himself. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Skip with me to verse 23. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Only Noah is left. Beginning again, humanity with one man. Beginning again with Noah. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. Now he's been in this boat for 150 days. half a year close to it with a bunch of really smelly animals and think of the poor daughters-in-law like they're on this boat for six months with their in-laws and a bunch of stinky animals like this is not a pleasant ride this is not some kind of cruise that they're on And oftentimes when we hear stories of Noah and the ark or see depictions we see this the happy little animals out on the boat, just watching the water go by. And, and it's amazing to me that this is a story we tell our children, like in this happy way. And Noah got on the ark and all the animals with him. And it was like this really cool floating petting zoo for 150 days. And kids fascinated and, and love it. But really what this is, is God's wrath towards sin being poured out on the earth. And Noah has to spend a hundred years building this boat. 
He's 600 years old when they enter the ark. And then they're stuck here with animal feces and all kinds of other wretched smells for 150 days. You can imagine that Noah is thinking, Lord, when is this going to be over? I did all that you commanded me, but there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. What are, what are you doing? What's going on? And then we see this verse that brings sweet relief, but God remembered Noah. Again, that word, but. <laughs> it's leading somewhere. We should anticipate something good is about to happen. God remembered Noah, all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Now, what's interesting is the word here for wind is the same Hebrew word that was used for the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1. The spirit of God is that spirit which parted the waters and brought forth dry land. And here in Genesis 8, the same thing is happening. God sent a wind, his spirit over the earth and the waters subsided and dry land began to appear. Now you think this was all just made up by somebody? Let's, let's keep going. Genesis 15, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. So they all got off of the ark. Verse 20. Um, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The first thing he does when he gets off the boat is worship. He worships God. He recognizes that he didn't bring himself through this flood by his own power. God brought them through and he's going to worship God. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, God just said, he has a sin nature. He's going to sin. I'm not going to curse the ground again. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons, fulfilling the covenant. He, he's going he's gonna to explain it in a second. And he said to them some very familiar words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the same thing he said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Notice, God's giving Noah dominion over the animals just as he had done with Adam in Genesis 1. Adam had dominion over the animals in naming them. And now Noah is going to have dominion over the animals and being able to eat them and kill them. Every moving thing that lives, verse 3, shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood, because that's gross. Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, for his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of the life of man. So God again states 
the importance, the dignity, the value, and the worth of human life. Just as he had done in Genesis 1. I created man in my image. He bears my image. So he's reiterating that to Noah. That if somebody kills a man, his blood's going to be required. You can kill animals, you can eat them. But if you kill a man, your blood will be required of you. Verse 6. For whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, some people might say, well, that's the Old Testament, doesn't apply today. Um, That's law, doesn't apply today. Um, This is a great argument for capital punishment because it places the weight of the image of God in man. Um, and, And it's different than creatures or animals. Verse seven, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Because God has made man in his own image. So be fruitful, multiply, increase the image of God on the earth. Cover the face of the earth with my image. That's that's what God's saying. Remember he had cast Satan down from heaven because of his pride, because he wanted to be like God. and, And God cast him out of heaven with the fallen angels. And he's made Satan the prince of the power of the air. And and the earth is your dominion for now. And then God places his image bearer in the earth and says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill it because Satan knows his days are numbered. So I want you to fill the earth with my image. So now God is going to fulfill the promise he made in Genesis six eighteen, verse eight. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. He told him earlier in chapter six, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. Now he's fulfilling his promise. I establish it with you and your offspring after you. Verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These, these three were the sons of Noah and from these people of the whole earth um, were dispersed. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Now, if you are a Jew before Christ, reading these words of Moses, up until this point, you may be thinking Noah is the promised one. God brought him through a flood of his wrath that destroyed everything. And Noah came out on the other side and God is making a covenant with him that he's never gonna destroy the earth again. You may be reading this going, this is the one. He's gonna crush the serpent's head. We are saved from the curse. And you would be right to be thinking those things. God said he was going to send this one. He's been promised. And they're reading this story that Moses had written down going, yes, Noah's the one. Noah's the one. And then we read here in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Just as Adam had done, Noah sins by the fruit of the vine. Another parallel to Adam Adam sinned from the fruit of the tree. Noah sins by the fruit of the vine. He gets drunk. Just like Adam, Noah is naked and needs a covering. After Adam and Eve sinned, they saw their nakedness. They were ashamed. They hid. They tried to cover themselves. Here, Noah is naked and needs a covering. So as we walked through this story, there are a lot of things that we can say. Um, Many people will teach different aspects of Noah's flood. Some may use it as an apologetic for why the earth is not billions of years old, that the flood could have caused rock layers and all these different things. And that's great and that's good. But the flood is so much more. The flood points to the central theme of the scriptures, that God will save his people through judgment. That judgment will come upon man's sin and God will save his people through that. The flood really sits at the center of the rest of scripture. This was not only a story of recreation. This was a story of decreation, what happens because of man's sin. But then it shows that God is going to do something new. The story begins by focusing on the sinfulness of man. We saw that in the beginning of chapter six. Man was wicked on the earth. God saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. And because of man's sin, God determines that he will judge the world by a flood. The flood is a symbol that's used over and over again of God's judgment through which he brings salvation. This imagery is used over and over again in the Old Testament. Moses, as he's writing this story of Noah, is also writing about himself. What's interesting is that the word ark, the Hebrew word for ark that's used with Noah, is only used one other time in the Old Testament. And that word is used to speak of Moses' basket that his mom placed him in and put him in the waters to be saved from the wrath of Pharaoh. 
Moses is writing this intentionally. He wants there to be drawn a parallel between what happened to him and what happened to Noah. Moses is saved, Moses is saved through the water in an ark as a baby. Moses then leads the people of Israel through the waters of judgment. God parts the Red Sea. Moses leads the people of God through the water and then pours out his wrath and his justice on the Egyptian army as the water overtakes them and kills them and destroys them all. And as Moses passes through the water with the people of Israel, he's leading them to where? The promised land. It's a picture of salvation. Over and over, prophets refer to the foreign armies as a flood coming to destroy Israel. But God will always preserve some and keep his covenant with them. Then ultimately, Jesus refers to his crucifixion as a baptism. In Mark chapter 10, he equates God's judgment on sin with immersion in the water. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Just so you know, I'm not making it up. Chapter 10, verse 38. When you're there, say, "Uh uh-huh. All right. Still hear some pages turning. Wait a second. Verse 38, Mark 10. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Speaking of the cup of God's wrath, his judgment. Are you able to drink of that cup? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In other words, this immersion in the waters of God's wrath. Are you able to withstand that? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You're going to pass through the waters of judgment. And either you are going to pass through those waters of judgment in Christ or outside of Christ. And that will determine if you make it through the waters of God's judgment. And so baptism symbolizes our burial with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. But the water itself symbolizes this story from Genesis 6, that the waters of God's wrath have been poured out on Jesus and those who are in Christ will be raised out of the waters and saved from the wrath of God. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. When we are laid into the water, we are identifying ourselves with Christ as he went through the waters of God's judgment and rose victorious. And those who are in Christ will take part in that. Hamilton writes, Jesus died under the full weight of God's wrath against sin. Jesus' death is the fulfillment of what Noah's flood anticipated. See, Noah made it through the waters, but then he sinned. Proving that he wasn't the one that God had promised. He wasn't the one who would defeat Satan because he fell back into sin. So Noah points to a better Noah, a better Adam. 
to the one who would come later, Jesus, who would take on the full weight of God's wrath, would go through the waters of judgment, and it would rise again victorious, sinless, ever living to intercede for us. Dr. Hamilton goes on to write, this is the judgment through which God saves his people. When believers are baptized by faith into Jesus, they are united to him in his experience of the flood waters of God's wrath. This is why Peter says that the flood corresponds to baptism, which now saves us. In 1 Peter 3, 20, Peter writes this, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, don't go here leaving thinking that, that baptism and the water itself saves you. The act of baptism that we look at, that we look upon, is not an act that saves you. Peter's talking about a spiritual reality, the baptism by the Spirit on us is what saves us when God comes to dwell in our hearts. And baptism that happens on a platform like this, in a pool, that is to symbolize a spiritual reality. It shows, it's an outworking or an outer display of what's already happened in the heart. And it now saves us. The flood interprets and explains the Bible's storyline. Sin, judgment through which salvation comes, a new covenant, and a new creation. This is the Bible's storyline. The flood also anticipates the waters of God's wrath. So just as Noah was saved through the visitation of God's wrath on the world, those who believe in Jesus are saved through the visitation of God's wrath at the cross. The flood also points forward to the culmination of the story. Peter explains later that the world that then existed and was deluged with water and perished while the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's in 2 Peter 3, verse 6 and 7. God purified the world by water at the flood and he will purify it by fire in the future. And those who are not in the ark of the cross of Jesus Christ will not survive the second judgment. God will once again destroy the entire earth, not with a flood because he promised he wouldn't do it that way again, but he will destroy it by fire. And the only way of escape is through the cross of Jesus Christ because he took on the flood of God's wrath and came out victorious. And so the message to you this morning Number one is that the Bible is God's word. It is true. Hopefully you've seen that demonstrated as we walk through all of scripture and how the flood that was written of thousands of years before Second Peter was written directly corresponds to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And since the Bible is true, we know that you were born in sin. Man's heart is evil from his youth, as we read. From his youth. You were born in sin. There's nothing you can do to escape 
God's wrath and God's justice on sin except placing your faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for you. He was the only one who could take on God's full wrath towards sin and come out victorious. And by faith, you put your, your trust, you believe in him, and you will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you've, you've never heard this message of salvation, this grace that God has offered in Christ, it's my prayer and my hope that you would turn to him. You would recognize there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. If you're here this morning and you've heard this story over and over again, maybe as a child growing up and you thought, man, Noah's great. Like, it's really cool what he did. But that's where it stops. I pray that now as you read through these stories, as we, as we walk through this series, that you would recognize every story and every narrative of Scripture points to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that you would glory in that, that you would praise God for his faithfulness to bring the second Adam that Romans 5 talks about in one man, many shall be made alive the obedience of Christ, many will be made righteous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these stories that point to the greater story of what you are doing in the world. God, I pray that we wouldn't see scripture as merely a rule book as a book about heroes that we are to emulate, but that we would see it as the very words of God written down for us to learn about who he is and what he has done and what he will do. As we look back on the faithfulness of God in bringing the promised Messiah, that we would know that he will remain faithful to his promise to once again come and destroy the world by fire and those who are not in Christ will be judged and condemned eternally. He kept his word in the past and he will keep it in the future. So I pray we would turn to him in faith. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.